Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 23 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a means to get the listener to go beyond the pond and listen to non-jam bands. As we've said in the past, we love fish. We are fish fans. But sometimes the problem with fish fans is all they listen to is fish. They kind of dig in their heels and in their stubbornness and intransigence, they don't want to open their mind. The next thing you know, they're shutting down the U.S. government. So as uh, Dave was mentioning, this is episode 23. And in this episode, we are going to take a step back as far as we've gone in fish history to uh, spring of 1993, April 2nd, to be more specific. We're going to cover the weak pog groove from that show. Um, so for those of you who have listened to us, for those of you who are new, just a quick overview of what we do uh, in our kind of more normal episodes like this. We take a specific fish jam, break it down in a thematic sense, talk about it sonically, talk about it in terms of larger themes within the overall song, uh, do kind of a historical deep dive, and then pick out somewhere between four and six songs to focus on. Uh, like I said, they can uh, really resonate with us from a thematic sense. They can resonate with us from a sonic standpoint. Um, we talk about a bit of new music here and there, but it's really kind of a guided history through fish, as well as a chance for you guys to discover some new music that we think you'll enjoy based on liking the jam that we're talking about. And some of the themes that you can expect us to dive into in this episode include piano-led jams, the staccato build, and the first experimentation. And with that, let's get to the fish. Why are we talking about this? Well, this is a really excellent early example of fish truly jamming outside of their strong structures. Something that if you go back and listen to the spring of 93, you really hear this band for the first time uh, opening up in a way that they hadn't since the mid 80s. Um, so with that in mind, so in 1987, 1988, there's a lot of jamming. Uh, there's a lot of long, lengthy, uh, very loose jams uh, that Fish was playing during that period in time. Following that period, the band really consciously reined things in to focus on writing, to focus on tightness, recording, and really touring the hell out of their overall catalog. It wasn't until the spring of 1992, so three, four years after that, that they even began to hint at jamming. And at this point, they were much tighter, much more professional musicians but they were a very, very tight band, and they weren't really allowing themselves to go on stage and not totally know what was going to happen from a musical standpoint. Uh, notably, the 421-1992 Tweezer is a big eye-opening moment for the band where they took the song in a direction they'd never taken it in before, 
and really improvised on a theme in a in a very unique way and connected over improvisational music. Um, flat fast forward by the spring of '93. They'd really grown comfortable enough on stage that they'd started flirting with true experimentations. You can hear this in the Roxy, and you can really tell that they were on the verge of another artistic breakthrough, right? Yeah, and it seems like for whatever reason, Weekapod, Groove, and Stash emerged as the big jam vehicles of spring 1993, and both are, uh, feature really high-quality versions that hold up today, even if they kind of sound like a completely different band in the process. And I would say, just for reference, some of the really excellent versions of Weekapod Group from that era include the one from um, March 13, 1993, from Boulder, Colorado. March 19, 1993, from Redlands, California. Brian Brinkman's eighth birthday. My eighth birthday. I was not there, though, but uh, no. in spirit. We got... March 27, 23rd, uh, March 27, 1993, from San Francisco, California. March 30th, Eugene, Oregon, with a jam on the Talking Head Psycho Killer. And April 16, 1993, from the Macaulay Theater in Louisville, Kentucky, a.k.a. my first ever fish tape. Threw me for a loop. So they actually started off 1993 in February of 93. I think it was the first shows at the Expo Center in Portland, Maine. And this is significant because this show had Paige adding a brand new baby grand piano to his onstage arsenal. And as you will see, he was determined to use it. And that show was the first they opened with Loving Cup, which I guess they... Had wanted to play for a while. Paige said, I'm not going to play this until we get a baby grand piano on stage. And they did, and they opened the show with it, and it was good. And Loving Cup subtly became the go-to set-to-closer encore uh, for much of the rest of the career, even up to today. Um, But it's really at this point, I think that you can identify there's a huge change with Paige's baby grand piano on stage. Fish really starts making important music, and uh, the piano just adds this regality, this depth to their overall playing. It's notable in their composed material almost immediately. I mean, go back and listen to a Fall of 92 show where the band is as tight and as energized and as, in a lot of ways, as creative as they would be just a couple months later here in uh, uh, February of 93, but they just sound more professional now with the, the baby grand. Um, but it really, where it really showcases is, is in their overall improv. Um, suddenly they weren't just limited to Trey led jams. They could jam as a unit with depth as their two leading melodic instruments would now communicate through music in a really, really sincere way. Um, in the spring of 93, you can ha- hear this happen nightly through Stash, or excuse me, through Weekapog. And uh, this jam that we're going to talk about here tonight and we're going to play here for you is, uh, is no exception. Um, and Weekapog, you know, it's a really interesting test case from a jam for Fish. It's always joyous. I don't think that there's a single point when Weekapog starts that the crowd and the band aren't just beaming ear to ear. Um, But it can then splinter in a number of different directions in ways that few other Fish songs can. It can be a 7, 8, 10 minute long, just really happy, melodic uh, Fish jam. Really energized, everyone's dancing, nothing weird happens. Um, But it can also splinter off into really kind of dissonant, 
unique uh, uh, directions. And so we've kind of come up with a, a list of jams over the last 20 odd years here, 25 years that kind of sound as though they're descendants from these Spring 93 versions. What are a couple that we have here, Dave? So the first one we had was August 16th, 1993 from St. Louis. I think that was actually part of a recent Live Fish release. Yeah. We've got October 25th, 1994 from Atlanta. November 25th, 1994 from University of Illinois, Chicago. December 28, 1994, that was from Philadelphia, the first night of the New Year's run. December 7th, 1995, from um, Niagara Falls, that was released. That one has a excellent digital delay loop jam on the end. Yes. And that is the second of, I believe, only two versions of Mike's song, Into Weekapog Groove, that they did in early December 95, that I just love how that happens. Yeah, um, that was like, um, what was the other one? It was December 1st, 95, from Hershey? Yes, yes where they just find the Weekapog groove if you will uh, yes. like 16 minutes in the mic song and just ride it right into there um, it's kind of reminiscent for me of the uh, Homedale 2000 uh, the drowned in rock and roll where you just hear them playing the song for five minutes and then boop, here it is um, but just kind of finishing off our list here with regards to Weekapog uh, another holiday run 122896 from Philly opening night there it's got a great Mike's Groove overall, really kind of unique Weekapog. Uh, 11-27-98 from Worcester. Wipeout! The Wipeout show, the Mirror in the Bathroom show, the Weekapog where it sounds like Trey is channeling Robert Fripp and playing his ba- his guitar backwards. It's unbelievable. Dog log, everything. That show, everything, everything. That show is, uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone walked out of that show being like, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> uh, jumping ahead to 2.0, uh, January 4th, 2003 from Hampton, a show that I just recently listened to and uh, is much better now than I remember it being in, in, in the moment. Um, <clears throat> and then two versions from 2015, uh, January 2nd, 2015 from Miami, which turns into a crazy full band drum slash marimba lumina jam. And... Um, uh, August 4th, 2015 from Nashville, uh, coming on the heels of the first Mike's song, second jam in 15 years. Uh, this week of Pog was absolutely mind-numbing and really groovy and slowed down and got really weird there for a little bit and went back into cross-eyed and then came back in a week of Pog. Just mm. very, very good stuff. Just a note on the January 2nd, 2015 one from Miami. That was actually a very interesting New Year's run. The fact that the first night was actually New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So January 2nd was the third night of that run. And sort of also, that was kind of the show where the band woke up. I think both New Year's and January 1st aren't regarded as being that great. But certainly that Mike's group with the Week Epoch sort of signals the point where Fish is, where Fish is great again, would say. Yes. Yes, and um, that January third show that followed that I think is a direct result of the Mike's there the uh, the week of Pog, uh, is one of the better shows from a really great year of fish as is two thousand. That's a that's a fire show. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, and so you know talking about week of Pog here, winter and spring '93 did not lack for week of Pog groove. 
Uh, it is no exaggeration to say that Fish was playing it nearly every other night. Um, 1993, you know, it's really considered by a lot of people to be a breakthrough uh, for the band. I would personally argue that this all kind of started in 92, but that's a subject for a different day and probably a different podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, August 93 is a huge, huge watershed moment for the band. That all said, their song, song rotation, I mean, you think that 2014 was a tight song selection? This is... Um, as I think tight as you could have ever, ever imagined it for Fish at that point in time. Um, lots of You Enjoy Myself, lots of big ball jams, lots of bouncing, and a lot of mic screws. Which doesn't seem like something you could really complain about in this day and age. No. But, <laughs> you know, embarrassment of riches. It was. And actually, we have one fun fact that the band played Tweezer in 1992 or 1993. They weren't playing Mike's Groove and vice versa. Pretty much every show of that era featured either song, the obvious exception here being the legendary Roxy show from um, February 20th, 1993. Yeah, that was something that didn't... I, I knew that it was like the switch on and off between those two songs. Um, but... Uh, I can't believe that the Roxy, not only did it feature just a flowing, fully fluid second set, but it has their two biggest jam vehicles of the time right in the middle of it all. It's a pretty incredible thing. Also pretty incredible considering a few weeks ago, Fish played Mike's Groove and Tweezer right back to back in the first set. Something that had never happened before. No. Um... So taking a broader step back and, and, and look at the winter and spring of 1993, um, as we kind of mentioned, I mean, this was a really relentless tour. Uh, they played nearly every night from February 3rd to May 8th. It's the longest tour in Fish history, and it's not even close. I think it's 71 shows throughout the entire tour. It's really similar in structure to the spring of 92 tour, and it's something from a structural standpoint I don't think they'll ever play a 70 show tour ever again I don't really even think that would be a good thing for them at this point um, but something I'd kill to see them do at least once um, would be to start in the northeast go down the south move west work up the California coast to Seattle and then traverse west to the midwest and finish the tour off in New England once again there's something about when they get back to Durham and they're in New Hampshire again and they're back in their home territory, and they've seen the whole country over those five months. Like, talk about, about a fucking road trip and a homecoming. What, what a cool thing for them to do. I mean, for there to be people that saw them in February in Maine, and now again in May in New Hampshire, and just hear this band that has grown over four months, that's just such a cool thing to me. You could really, really pad your stats okay. if you lived in the tri-state area on that in that stretch of time, you could see them in New York City, in Poughkeepsie, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Albany, New York, West Hartford, Connecticut. It's almost like they were saying, you know, F it, we're two years away from our 30s. When are we going to have this type of energy ever again? <laughs> in particular, the run of shows from Colorado Springs on March 9th through Louisville, Kentucky on April 16th. That's the tour's clear peak. Nearly every show, it's got energy, humor, passion, setless creativity, jamming. And uh, you know, the latter two are obviously our, our era relative. 
So one just quick side note as we're talking here about spring of 93 and, you know, we haven't really covered a lot of early fish on this podcast, just not super in the theme of the overall podcast. This is our first pre-95 jam of any sort. Um, But, you know, this this era kind of does get overlooked by a lot of people um, who, who seek out fish for like the jamming because from 95 through today there's obviously a better breadth of jamming than there was this period but um back in back three years ago spring of 2015 i had a idea in mind i wanted to hear fish's evolution in real time and so i set out on this project uh to just listen to like 92 and 93 with a little bit more um commitment and i ended up as a lot of listening projects do, going to the extreme. And I listen to every single Spring 92, 93, 94, and 95 show on their anniversaries from February 3rd to July 16th. It was like over 220 fish shows. Uh, it was in, or 220 unique shows, I think it was. But it allowed me to hear the band shift over a four-year period in time in a way that I'm used to now in 3.0, but never had done it in 1.0 on that level and never had done it this type of an era of, of the band, uh, their history, where they're playing so tight and such a tighter rotation. Um, really allowed me to appreciate Fish through the show-by-show development over that four-year period in time. And I would just really recommend if you get anything out of this episode, other than the bands we're going to talk about down the road here, really go back and revisit, especially that month of uh, Spring 93 from March 9th to April 16th, where there isn't a bad show in that tour in that run and uh there's a lot of great stuff that you could hear about the band from a very young era but you know now 10 years into their career as they're really moving into this next chapter of their career you young whippersnappers with your internet access and your downloads (laughs) listen to every single spring man back in my day we had to wait at the mailbox for the padded mailer and we had to had to beat up the mailman looking for the padded mailer and then pull it out of the back of the mail truck and I don't know. In any event, let's listen to the Week of Pod Groove from April 2nd, 1993.
All right. I hope that you enjoyed that segment of the Week Upon Groove from April 2nd, 1993. And one of the things that you heard in there is what we're going to focus on here in our first segment, and that is piano-led jams. Um, so as we talked about before we played the jam, uh, you know, Page's Baby Grand Piano really changed Fish in the spring of 1993. And you can hear in that jam, and I assure you, if you go back and listen to any of the jams we talked about from Week Pogger's Stash, his Baby Grand Piano is prominent um, throughout those jams. Um, so, you know, within that, we wanted to focus on uh, moments where artists use piano in a forward-thinking way uh, that really rose to the prominence and, you know, overcame guitars, drums, whatever it may be. So the first uh, artist we've got listed here is a German composer and producer named Nils Fromm. Uh, I featured Nils Fromm in one of our Twitter deep dives that we did uh, during fall 1997. I'm blanking on the jam that we did at this point, but I, I will uh, look it up <laughs> for, for our show notes. But um, Nils Fromm is fantastic. He's known for mixing classical and electronic music. He fuses a number of different keyboards. He uses a grand piano, a Roland Juno 60, and a Moog throughout his recordings. And one of his main focuses throughout his career is really in the sonic quality of his recordings. So all of his recordings just sound really good and very clear. Um, they really at times reach a plane of perfection. It's just very pleasing music to listen to. Um, of note, Fromm's father was a photographer for ECM Records. So Nils grew up around artists and the record industry throughout his entire childhood. He's basically been just like a product of this his whole life. Um, on his music, Fromm has said that he's interested in how human beings react in certain situations and what music does to people's emotions, how we can change people's attitudes with tones. And he, he believes after he's played a good concert, people leave the room happy. This is something that he wants to give back to the world. And he feels that when people feel down, like everything's going to shit, at least we can give uh, some music, at least we can change attitudes so people don't think that the whole world is shit. And that is, in essence, his religion. And you really get that sense in his music. It's very communal. It's very personal. It's very emotional. Um, so the song that we're going to feature here is called Down Down. It's off of The Bells, which is his third LP. It's all solo piano and really an overall preview of where he would go with his music, especially in his 2014 masterpiece, uh, To This Point, Spaces. The entire album was improvised on piano in a cavernous Berlin cathedral. You can hear the echo throughout the cathedral within the entire album, particularly in the song Said and Done, which is a song that is extended by six minutes on spaces in a way that really fully realizes its ominous beauty. Um, you know, just in regards to From, what you're going to hear here with Down Down is a song that's him in very much like a a base level sense of, of who he would ultimately become. Uh, he's more fully realized as a composer, a pianist, and an artist uh, on his later records. But here, kind of like with Fish in 93, you hear the origins of his sonic um, approach and his interests. Um, on this song, Down Down, it's a song that builds from near nothing into chaos and dimly lit noise. You hear from in the same manner we hear Page throughout spring 90, 1993. Very eager, curious, fearless, and really learning on the spot to be a leader. 
Um, while, like I said above, the true creative power of Fromm will come in his 2014 album, it's so fascinating, similar again, once again to Fish, to hear his origins, even if it's clear his particular brand of composing, required much more sonic noise and experimentations to really become fully realized. Um, so on that note, we're going to listen to Down Down off of Nils Fromm's 2009 LP, The Bells. I hope you enjoy this. Okay, Brian, thank you uh, for playing us that song by Nils Fromm. I know I had listened to that prior to the recording and found it fascinating. I very much look forward to hearing more of his work. So the song I'm going to play here for piano-led jams is a very different kind of piano jam relative to Nils Fromm. This is a song from a Philadelphia-based band called Low Cut Connie, and the song is called Boozophilia. The philia in question is uh, would be Philadelphia. So originally, well, when these guys came around, I want to say in, um, I think about 2010, 2011, they originally consisted of the duo of Adam Wiener on piano and lead vocals and Danny Finnamore on drums and also vocals with their rotating cast of musicians backing them up. Wiener is originally from Sherry Hill, New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia, and Finnamore was from Birmingham, England. Since then, Finnamore has returned to England, but Adam Wiener soldiers on with a crack touring band. I actually think the same guys who tour, the same guys who are in the studio, I think there's about six or seven musicians total. I don't know all their names. Please forgive me, members of Low Cut Connie. So kind of what happened is sort of think what, uh, what Josh Homme did when Nick Oliveri left Queens of the Stone Age. So, I mean, technically, Homme had a few more songs that he needed to write, but he ultimately he's the straw that stirs the drink, so he figured it out. Like In the same way, Wiener, he's, he's the front man of Loka Kani. Um, certainly, the songs put forth by Danny Finnamore were good, and they probably won't play those songs anymore, but Wiener is where it's at. And he's the consummate frontman. He sings in front of his 400-pound upright piano that's named Chandra, in tribute to a dancer at Atlanta's famed Claremont Lounge. He's a sweaty, hairy guy. He's kind of fond of performing in tank tops and wearing large gold chains. And 
Look, Connie's brand of music is rollicking, Jerry Lee Lewis type of piano-led dive bar rock and roll, almost like the replacements meets Jerry Lee Lewis type of song. Um, I have not seen them live yet. Supposedly the live show is incredible. I need to see them on stage. They have four albums, the most recent of which, Dirty Pictures Part 1, is probably the most filler-free and the fullest sounding. It was also one of my favorite albums of 2017. However, this song is taken from their 2012 album, Call Me Sylvia, and I picked it because it's quite possibly their signature song, a good time tribute to their adopted city of Philadelphia that's catchy as hell, and has a video that's basically the dive bar performance of your dreams. The song is so catchy, in fact, that in 2015, none other than President Obama included this song on a published Spotify mix, which resulted in Adam Weiner getting to meet the president at the White House. This is incredibly awesome and incredibly depressing when you consider who's in there now. But if you want to talk about making America great, at least know that not too long ago we had a president who was a low-cut county fan. And we also happened to be recording this on the same evening that the uh, Philadelphia Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. So uh, certainly there's going to be some hopefully happily riding in the streets, hopefully not too many cars turned over, not too many... Yeah, <laughs> not too many uh, people trying to climb up light posts and falling from light posts and breaking <laughs> arms, although breaking arms happily. But certainly, Boozophilia would be a fantastic soundtrack to the fun debauchery, but hopefully nobody gets hurt, indulges in a little sleaze, gets down a bit. That's kind of what Loka Connie, that's their MO. They want you to have fun and shake your thing and but not get hurt and just enjoy being in Philadelphia. So with that, let's listen to Boozophilia by Loka Connie. so much for that selection from low cut connie great night to celebrate all things philadelphia um mm. <laughs> monks is gonna run out of cantillon it sure is it's sure all is. the pliny give me all the pliny all of it all of it um all right so we're moving into a kind of a little break period here we're talking about new albums so um I think we're both kind of at the era or at the part of 2018 where we're still discovering late 2017 records, which is where 
my choice has come from. So I'm uh, talking about a singer-songwriter from Barcelona named Joana Serra. Uh, and the album I'm talking about is her latest release called Dripping Springs. Um, so Serrat was raised on American roots folk music in Barcelona. Roy Orbison, Neil Young, Springsteen, and especially Bob Dylan were really formative, formative for her. And she discovered her own really unique voice during a life-changing period in time in Dublin, Ireland in 2008, her, uh, where she recorded her first EP, Liffey, under the pseudonym JST. From there, she toured Portugal and France before formally changing her stage name to her own full name. And she came to the U.S. in the early 2010s, where she recorded in Nashville. And here on this record, just outside of the rural Texas town that gives this album its name. This album, Dripping Springs, is drenched in reverb. The production here is from Israel Nash, and she recorded at his Plum Creek Studios, and it's just pristine. Every instrument is heard with clarity, yet the entire record sounds as though it's being watched in sepia. Uh, you can just hear the enti- you can hear every instrument perfectly, but it all sounds distant and cavernous in this way that I just absolutely love. Uh, the record itself flows with really thematic precision, starting with the song Western Cold Wind and Lost Battles. It really recollects classic 70s-era Laurel Canyon albums. And the peak of the record is the song Unnamed. It's uh, a stark and atmospheric song. It's isolated and haunting. It's really, really in my wheelhouse right now in its melodic brilliance and its atmospheric ambience. It spirals out into a very layered guitar solo over atmosphere. That's really what drew me in the first time I heard this song. Um, Similar in a lot of ways to the best fish jams from the late 90s. Uh, You get the best of psychedelia in this section. though fused with her Spanish alt-country folk base of her songwriting. You're left in a very duly familiar and wholly new place while hearing a song like Unnamed. Uh, lyrically, Serrat does such a great job fusing imagery with colors and memories and vague images intertwined with very specific recollections. It's just this intertwined narrative that's neither linear nor solely experiential uh, or experimental. Uh, like Adam Grandishiel from The War on Drugs, please drink. drink. They tell stories. Uh, she tells stories here that are equally universal and individualistic. You have a hard time not relating to her lyrics and not finding yourself in a more fully realized place upon re-listen. Though they're the kind of lyrics that anyone could put on. You could put on for someone and they could have uh, their own interpretation over her songs, but you both get it on your own personal level. It's love stuff like that. Um, so Joanna, Joanna Surratt, Dripping Springs, would definitely, definitely recommend our listening base listen to that record. Okay, Brian, and it's um, I have listened to that that Joanna Surratt album. I like it very much. And now that you tell me it's produced by Israel Nash, that makes a lot of sense because uh, that guy's 2014 album Rain Plains is reverb drenched Americana to a T. So they actually sound pretty similar in retrospect. The album I'm going to talk about is also from the end of 2017. This is by a guy named J.D. McPherson, and the album is called Undivided Heart and Soul. That's all in caps. And he's a 40-year-old soul-slash-rockabilly throwback guy who's originally from Oklahoma, but he has since relocated to Nashville because that's what most of the awesome musicians seem to be doing these days. 
They go to Nashville. They've got studios to record in. They can afford to live in East Nashville. It's suburban and great, and there's plenty of other like-minded individuals. So Undivided Heart and Soul is his third studio album, and every song is in caps because he means it, man. And I had to get used to the production at first because it kind of has an echoey, vaguely psychedelic sound that initially kind of felt like a bug, but I've since come to realize it's an asset. It actually sounds familiar to uh, the Alabama Shakes album, Sound and Color. And what he does, he kind of bridges the gap between old school rhythm and blues and punk rock. Sometimes the song sounds a tad too much like recent Black Keys, mostly the song Lucky Penny. But for the most part, he puts a refreshingly modern spin on uh, like rockabilly and kind of like Elvis when he was doing. I think uh, he reportedly invited... Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age to jam at the studio during the recording, and it kind of shows to a certain extent one gets the idea this album would kick some serious ass on stage, and you also get a little bit of uh, the 80s blue-eyed soul of uh, the British band Squeeze. But ultimately, it's a refreshing burst of old-school rock and roll with some good singer-songwriter touches, and it kind of crept up on me. I know uh, when it first came out in October, I was told uh, by some friends and some publications, I really enjoy that it was uh, something I should be expected to like right away. And I kind of didn't really dig it. I kind of put it away, put the book back on the shelf, went back to it recently, and it's been creeping up ever since. And uh, I think our listeners would enjoy it. So that's Undivided Heart and Soul by J.D. McPherson. So, okay, the uh, second segment that we are going to explore via the uh, April 2nd, 1993 tweets, uh, April 2nd, 1993 week of Pog Groove. It's what we're calling the first experimentation, aka kind of the point where a band breaks out of its shell and realizes for the purposes of a career longevity, they got to switch it up a bit. They're comfortable, they feel good in their skin, and they're willing to open things up and uh, really kind of step out. So the artist I'm going to discuss here is P.J. Harvey, and the song I'm going to use is Send His Love to Me off of her third album, which would be 1995's To Bring You My Love. And sort of the reason I was thinking a lot about P.J. Harvey as of late is I've been, me and my wife have been watching a ton of the British post-World War I gangster drama Peaky Blinders on Netflix lately. And the soundtrack consists entirely of what one might consider to be highbrow 90s British art rock. This means lots of Nick Cave, lots of P.J. Harvey. I realize Nick Cave is technically Australian, but I think he's lived in the United Kingdom since the early 80s. And I think most people think that he's British anyway. So, And uh, season two of this show, which uh, follows the travails of the gang leader Thomas Shelby, has a ridiculous amount of P.J. Harvey songs, predominantly off of her third album from 1995, To Bring You My Love. This is a sumptuous theatrical album. Both the cover and most of the videos that uh, came with the album, she's wearing what appears to be a red satin dress, and the key word within would seem to be drama. And this is a complete about-face from her first two albums, the comparatively sparse and extremely tension-filled Dry and Rid of Me. In particular, Rid of Me was produced by Steve Albini and is kind of viewed along with the Pixies surfer Rosa as perhaps being the signifier for the Albini drum sound. I'm told it's because he uses lots of rhythm mics, 
but it's the kind of sound that you know it when you hear it. And Rid of Me is an amazing album, but it often feels like rubbing your face with a Brillo pad. In contrast, To Bring You My Love is produced by Mark Ellis, also known as Flood, who has a huge list of 90s credits, including Smashing Pumpkins, Depeche Mode, U2, and Nine Inch Nails. He gets these big 90s alt-rock bands with big sounds, and it's about as an about-face from Steve Albini as you could possibly imagine. And I always kind of imagined... Flood is like a tall British guy dressed in flowing robes and whatnot because he's fucking Flood. But if you go to Google Images and do Mark Ellis' Flood as opposed to just Flood, you see lots of water, you see he kind of just looks like a hip professor you would want to like grab a pint with, which I suppose makes sense. So this album, To Bring You My Love, was key to Polly Jean Harvey's career longevity because it proved she could really expand outside of her strict angry post-punk milieu. Uh, the album has lots of keyboards, acoustic guitars, electronic pulses, and she actually, she has a beautiful voice. And this is the first record where she really has to sing far more than ever. And uh, the one time I saw her live was actually opening for U2 on the Elevation Tour, no less. And uh, she opened with the song, Send His Love to Me. And in doing so, she proceeded to nearly upstage the headliner. This is one of the greatest damsel in distress songs ever recorded. And this is an artist who's, uh, after this record, you said to yourself, PJ Harvey's really in it for the long haul. And as she's proven time and time again, she still is. So we're going to listen to Send His Love to Me off of uh, PJ Harvey's To Bring You My Love. so much for that selection from PJ Harvey. I will admit uh, my knowledge of PJ Harvey's overall discography is less than it should be, but uh, as with many bands in the past here for uh, w- that we've shared with each other on Beyond the Pond, this is an opportunity for me to dig right in, so I'm going to do that. Um, you can dig very, very deep, and it's all very, very good. That is the problem with all the bands that we like. Right. <laughs> There's no end. Um, so a uh, band on that sort of level, I'm going to talk about a band we've talked about here before, but in a totally different context here. So we're going to talk about the National, very early National, uh, 
because this section is focused on that first real experimentation. So I've picked a song off of their second record, Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers from 2003. The song is called It Never Happened. Um, so full disclosure, most people wrongly believe that Alligator is the first national album. and I It's was, not. It is not. Nope. I was one of those people. Uh, even after I learned that they had a self-titled album in 2001 and that Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers came out in 2003, I still kind of said, eh, there's really no reason I need to go back to, uh, back to those. Alligator's really where it begins, right? Right? No, I was wrong. I was ignorant, and it's inexcusable. Um, Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers, I've actually listened to probably more than any other national album in the last couple of months because I find it to be just a fantastic peek into this very incredibly creative uh, uh, band's formative years. One can really only wonder what these songs that they play on this record would sound like if they were graced with the elegance of Boxer or the discordant recording process of High Violet. One can also only wonder why the band doesn't feature some of these songs more in their overall live rotation. While in the studio, they can sound in some cases like sketches of future national songs, Live, you can only imagine a lot of these songs would flourish simply based on their overall structural simplicity and youthful energy. Um, and there are a couple songs they do play, but I feel like they would just do so well digging deep into the overall catalog. But while The National, the self-titled album, is a great foundational record for all the band was to become, Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers is really where The National gets comfortable in their own skin. Uh, still away from the, f- Still a year away from the first recording where they really sound like the national which is 2004's cherry tree ep a fantastic little record for them um here's where the desner brothers really start experimenting with adverse noise and dissonance and really kind of fucking with the structures and sonic landscapes of their songs here's where brian devendorf's drums really start to take the lead in the band's songwriting and where he becomes the most important cog to their overall kind of musical machine And here's where Matt Berninger's writing becomes darkly lit, very sardonic, more bitingly critical of modern culture, more urbane, post-millennial male, and really obsessed with the nuances of complicated relationships. Lots of nuances of complicated relationships in this album. Um, The song that we're featuring here, It Never Happened, is really the perfect encapsulation of the national figuring out how to be the national. It's four minutes and it's split into two halves. The first details the boredom so often associated with overstaying your welcome in your childhood hometown, particularly after reaching adulthood, and the second side of the album or of the song being this very sonic stretching of the overall musical theme, layering the noise and effects that they have at this point until the original song is almost completely unrecognizable. This is the first time the band really pushed themselves through their music to see what happened when they walked themselves off of a musical cliff. And it's a brilliant and extreme example of experimentation on the band's sound, much like what you would get from Fish's improv from 1993 to 1995, without which the more nuanced accomplishments of their later songs, Secret Meeting, And again, to kind of finish off the the fish metaphor, this is similar in a sense to Fish's Improv from 1997 to 2000. You don't get that nuanced, minimalistic jamming without a band so aggressively 
attacking songs from an improvisational standpoint. So, uh, It Never Happened is a national song that I am so glad I've discovered. I think that it's such a great peek into who the band is from a formative songwriting standpoint. And I'm going to play a clip from the second half of the song where you really kind of hear them just start to experiment with a sonic wall of sound. And you can just hear how this helps them as they move forward and really start experimenting with song structures going forward and just becoming a fascinating band. So it never happened by the National. for playing that national song brian that's uh would highly recommend sad songs for for dirty lovers that album in whole is quite excellent and certainly worth going back to visit if you think that alligator was the first national record it was not so in terms of recapping the songs that you heard this episode aside from the uh april 2nd 1993 we groove we had nils from with down down had Loka Connie with Boozophilia. Then we had PJ Harvey send his love to me. We had the National, it never happened. And I know in uh, the Beyond the Palm playlist, we'll also feature a song from Joanna Surratt's Dripping Springs album and JD McPherson's Undivided Heart and Soul. And just a quick reminder of where you can find us in the world. Probably the easiest place to find us is on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. We appreciate those of you who are retweeting us and linking us and getting us more followers. It's great for us to see our audience base expand and see more conversation around the podcast. Um, on Medium, we post a quick little blurb with some links uh, every episode at medium.com slash beyond the pond. And like Dave mentioned, we have an ongoing Spotify playlist, Beyond the Pond podcast songs. Every song from every episode is on there. You can follow along. You don't have to listen to me or Dave go on and on and wax nostalgia about the war on drugs or the national or even, God forbid, fish. Um, mm. Just hear the music. Just hear the music. In terms of our publishing structure... We generally publish every Tuesday. We're going to mix that up a little bit in the coming weeks. But we know that this one, I think it's going to be going to air on uh, January 30th. Is that correct, Brian? That is right. Okay. So this will be January 30th. And then they're generally, I think there's going to be an episode one week after that. A very special episode. But nine times out of ten, every other Tuesday, because Tuesdays have no feel, 
my least favorite day of the week. This gives you something to look forward to. Absolutely. And on that note, I am David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And come back with us on uh, Tuesday, February 6th, when we will join together, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and go beyond the pond. <laughs> <laughs>